Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Mayor Pete may have to break out not only his Spanish tonight, but his French, his Italian, his Maltese, maybe even the Norwegian. The lead starts right now. In the immortal words of Ernie Banks, let's play two. The man in poll position highlights night two of the first Democratic debates. And if night one is any indication, there could be a lot of left hooks being thrown. On the world stage, President Trump at the G20, publicly griping about the post-World War II pact with Japan, railing against Germany, railing against India. You'll never guess which world leader he did not attack, comrade. Plus, critics are calling it a case of politicians choosing their voters a Supreme Court decision that could decide how votes are counted for generations to come. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin with the 2020 lead and the second round of Democratic presidential candidates about to get their chance on the debate stage. The luck of the draw means tonight you will see Biden and Bernie, the top two candidates in national and most state polling. Joining them are a group of elected officials, most of them senators, and some of the, shall we say, wild card contenders. The lineup and the order of how they will stand on stage in Miami is author Marianne Williamson, former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper, entrepreneur Andrew Yang, South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, former Vice President Joe Biden, Senator Bernie Sanders, Senator Kamala Harris, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, Senator Michael Bennett, and last but not least, Congressman Eric Swalwell. CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports now on what the candidates saw last night that may have some in the second round reconsidering their strategies. Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders side by side tonight for round two of the first Democratic debates. The two 2020 frontrunners offering a stark choice for Democrats trying to win back the White House. On stage tonight, the party's generational and ideological divide on full display, with Biden and Sanders flanked by Pete Buttigieg and Kamala Harris, and joined by six other rivals searching for a breakout moment. As Biden checked out the debate stage today, Sanders paid a visit to the Homestead Shelter, where around 2,300 unaccompanied migrant children are being held just south of Miami. When asked about his debate strategy, he chose a boxing metaphor. I'm thinking of like Muhammad Ali. He noticed the weakness in his opponent. It's a far different Democratic Party than the last time Biden stood on a debate stage as Barack Obama's vice president. But aides say he intends to take a forward-looking approach, with one advisor telling CNN there is no need to try and draw a contrast with Senator Sanders. The contrast couldn't be more obvious or stark. Yet that is Biden's challenge. It was Sanders' progressive proposals that were largely driving the opening round of the Democratic debate last night. So yes, I'm with Bernie on Medicare for all. Elizabeth Warren raising her hand along with Bill de Blasio when asked if they would abolish private health insurance for a government-run plan. A lot of politicians who say, oh, it's just not possible. We just can't do it. It's have a lot of political reasons for this. What they're really telling you is they just won't fight for it. As Warren emerged unscathed from the first debate, Cory Booker snagged the most airtime as he still tries to introduce himself. When I got out of law school, I moved into the inner city of Newark to fight as a tenant lawyer for other people's rights. 
Julian Castro also stepping into the spotlight, challenging fellow Texan Beto O'Rourke on immigration, saying crossing the border should be a civil, not a criminal penalty. Some, like Congressman O'Rourke, have not. And I want to challenge all of the candidates to do that. And it was Amy Klobuchar who offered a reality check on free college and other pricey proposals. And I don't make all the promises that everyone up here makes. Now, those promises from progressives will be front and center once again tonight, particularly because many of them, in fact, are Bernie Sanders' own idea. Jake, but Joe Biden is going to present an electability argument. He believes he is the strongest Democrat to beat Donald Trump. Now, we do know that both Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders were watching the debate last evening for style and to see how other candidates were jumping in. They are expecting a lot of the other Democratic rivals to jump in. But one Joe Biden aide tells us, if other candidates want to make this about Joe Biden and his record, they're happy to do so because every time he's mentioned, he gets rebuttal time. Jake. All right, Jeff Zeleny in Miami. Thanks so much. Let's chew over all this with our experts. Jen Psaki, uh, let me start with you. What lessons do you think the candidates who are going to be debating tonight could learn from last night? Well, watching last night, I was thinking it is an advantage to go the second night, especially since there hasn't been a debate yet this season. Uh, and if I were a candidate or advising them and watching last night, I would say I learned two big things. One is you have to be specific in your answers. It's not going to fly to try to skirt an answer. It comes across or a question. It comes across poorly. Obviously, the moderators will go back at you. Beto O'Rourke is obviously a perfect example of what not to do uh, in the debate tonight. Uh, the other piece is that the moderators are going to go right at these candidates on their vulnerabilities. It's quite predictable, but if you're Mayor Pete's team, you should be very prepared to talk about the cop, uh, the, the shooting this week. If you're Biden's team, be very prepared to talk about segregationists. They will, the, the budding up with segregationists, I should say. Um, they, they, they I, I'm sure, are practicing that, but the moderators found a way to go at each, each of them. The third thing I would say is that they need to find ways to jump in. Uh, tonight, I would say Trump is going to be much more present earlier because Biden will want to make him more present. Mm -hmm. uh, the candidates need to be prepared for that and find, figure out ways and be prepared to jump in with their, with their best kind of Trump uh, contrast that will help them uh, align, you know, draw themselves out. And Karen, it wasn't just uh, Savannah Guthrie uh, and other moderators who went after uh, Beto O'Rourke for not answering the question. Yeah. Uh, it was a lot of the Democrats on the stage. Take a, a listen at our montage here. Yeah, private insurance is not working for tens of millions of Americans with deep respect to the congressman. Look, we've learned of painful lessons as Americans that we've gone to war without congressional authorization. I, I just think it's a mistake, Bethel. If you did your homework on this issue, you would know that we should repeal this section. And he wasn't, I mean, Elizabeth yeah. Warren is the poll leader on that stage, but they didn't go yeah. after her. Do you think that, that that's going to happen to Biden tonight? Possibly. I mean, the men went after each other. We were talking about the gender dynamic, right? Nobody went after the women, which was interesting. The thing with Beto, though, why he was so ripe for being attacked is he, he was trying, it was pablum. He was trying to do pieces of his stump speech in his 60 seconds or his 30 seconds. And as Jen was just saying, that doesn't work. He had very little substance. And so I think they may try to do it tonight, but I think it will be less effective because, number one, what you heard de Blasio do, that's a classic tactic of 
interrupt and then he raised his voice, right, so that the moderator shifted to him and he was able to command that that moment. I don't think Biden's going to give up the time uh, and we may end up with a shouting match. I don't know. We'll see. Mm. I think one of the things that will be really interesting to see, the gender gap is going to be so obvious on the stage visually. I'm curious to see if it will sound like a gender gap because the thing about when Biden talks about segregationists or his old buddies or, you know, when Bernie talks about the 60s, it just sounds like, you know, that's not the reality we're living in. That's not the future we're trying to build. What are you looking for tonight, Mary um, Catherine? First of all, I'll be damned if I didn't sort of enjoy that. You liked it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Come on surprising over. You're welcome. at this point. I mean, just like the just a debate. It was, it was fun to watch. Um, I think a couple things. Uh, I think Biden could learn from Tulsi Gabbard's LGBTQ answer, uh, which I thought was uh, sort of was powerful, was sensitive, was sensitive to both sides of the issue and accepted the fact that she, look, I really did have this different view. This is the reason I had it. I have now stood next to um, LGBTQ warriors and would, would die for them. And that is, that's a pretty daggone great answer. Uh, and something that Biden should look at is he's having to repent for several uh, past, past transgressions. Um, I think they should learn to talk more about the fact that they can beat Trump and this is why. Mm -hmm. um, because I enjoyed the debate partly because it was a lot about issues. But if you look at polling, Democrat voters uh, actually want to just hear how you can beat Trump. And I thought that for that reason, Amy Klobuchar's clo uh, closing was quite strong. So, Patrick, let me ask you, because take a look at our, 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 at our count of notable names mentioned last night. Candidates only mentioned Trump 19 times in two hours. That's not really a lot for a two-hour debate. McConnell's name uh, uh, came up four times. He was being asked about it by Chuck Todd. Uh, Joe Biden's name not mentioned at all. What do you think of that? Should they be pressing the case more against President Trump? Well, I think tonight they will. Look, Jake, this is, um, this is Joe Biden's opportunity to press his case. His case is very simple. I can beat Donald Trump. The rest of this crowd has got to earn the right to get where I am right now in a lane that is small in the progressive Democrats of today. But at the same time, He's making this electability case, which, frankly, has gone on far longer than I thought Joe Biden could sustain this in spite of the gaffes. I would tell you tonight, Joe Biden's going to mention Donald Trump a lot. I think there'll be a lot of engagement of Trump because the Biden people want to keep this not about this family skirmish. Right. They want to make this about the bigger prize, which is beating Donald Trump. But you know what? The road to going after Donald Trump runs through the Democratic primary. Yep. So uh, Biden, too often times on the trail, is so focused on the general, he is not speaking to or doesn't seem to understand the Democratic Party where we are today. And it, this is all about, you know, you got to win the primary in order to get on that stage with Trump. And so this is his first opportunity, I think, also to prove that he understands where the party is today. Julian Castro had a breakout night last night. I think a lot of people agree. Strong performance. Maybe actually wonder what would have happened if Hillary had picked him as a running mate instead of Senator Kane, as much as everybody here loves Senator Kane. Um, but uh, is there anyone you're looking for tonight that you think might have a breakout on that stage? I think there are people who need to have a breakout, uh, yeah. like Kirsten Gillibrand, I would say. You know, she's somebody who um, I've known her since she ran for Congress in 2006. She's somebody who is probably the strongest advocate on abortion rights and on many women's issues that really hasn't broken through or broken out. Uh, she needs to have a moment so she can get on the debate stage in September. If she doesn't, uh, I'm not sure what her path forward is because I don't know how she's going to raise money and, and be relevant. Um, you know, I think tonight also, uh, while, while, there's, while there's kind of a tieredness about the race at this point, it's so early um, that even candidates who are in the higher tier, like a, a Mayor Pete or... Um, um, 
you know, Bernie and Biden are sort of their own thing, but they also need to introduce themselves to the public. So I'm less about breakout moments than how they are able to weave in their bios. Um, some candidates did that quite well, like Elizabeth Warren last night did. I also think Cory Booker did it well. But this is really their introduction to the public. So they need to, you know, acknowledge the moderator question, answer it, and then figure out a way to naturally even their bio. And that's what I'll be looking for. It is early, but I will say by, I think, July or August of 2015, Trump was first in the polls and he just in the within the Republican ranks and it never went away after that. So, yes, it's early, but the clock the clock is ticking. Everyone stick around. We've got a lot more to talk about. Debate standout Julian Castro will join me live and we'll ask him if there's a feud brewing between himself and Beto O'Rourke. Plus, the architect of the last successful Democratic presidential run joins me next. That's back in 2012. David Axelrod taking on what Joe Biden needs to do uh, needs to do tonight and what he needs to avoid. Stay with us. In our 2020 lead now, we're just hours away from round two with four of the five Democratic frontrunners, Biden, Sanders, Harris and Buttigieg, facing off in tonight's debate. What do they and the other six on the stage need to do this evening? Joining me now is one of the most qualified people in the country to ask, answer that question, David Axelrod, the former chief strategist for Barack Obama's presidential campaigns. David, always good to see you. Thanks for joining good us. Good to see you, yeah. What's the main thing you're looking for tonight? Well, obviously, all eyes are going to be on Biden. He's the front runner. Uh, and uh, there is some expectation that Bernie Sanders will try and engage him. I think that's probably true. And not so much to upset Biden, Biden's support, but because it's a way to certify himself, Bernie, as the champion of the left. So I think he'll use Biden as kind of a foil uh, for establishment, moderate, you know, Democrats. Uh, but uh, but Biden himself has some imperatives. He uh, the greatest vulnerability he has, as far as I'm concerned, is these questions are questions about age. Yeah. Uh, and so his first his first imperative is to stand on that stage for two hours and look actively engaged and in command. And I think that's very, very important. The second is to not uh, sound like a guy who's living in a kind of sepia toned reminiscence of the past, but a candidate who can lead the country uh, into the future. And the third is to take those attacks from uh, Bernie Sanders, respond to them, uh, but also deflect back to his fundamental argument, which is this is about Donald Trump. Donald Trump has to be replaced. And I'm the man who can do it. And uh, I think that will be central. That's been central to his rhetoric from the beginning of this campaign. I think it's going to be central to his message tonight. Before Biden joined the 08 Obama ticket as vice president, he participated in a series of debates because he was running for president himself. There were a couple of standout moments like this one from July 2007. Myself and other Americans really want to know if our babies are safe. This is my baby purchased under the 1994 gun ban. I'll tell you what, if that's his baby, he needs help. Uh, um. Now, popular with that audience of Democrats, but that's the vice president or soon to be vice president, essentially mocking a voter. Yeah. And look, and there'll be those moments you get with with Joe Biden, you get the whole package. You know, he is authentic. And sometimes that authenticity gets him into trouble. But I will tell you this, Jake, I, I witnessed every one of those debates uh, close, uh, close at hand in 2007. And uh, and Joe Biden was on the whole a very disciplined debater. I think he's underrated in this regard. Uh, he it was, in fact, the, the way he performed in those debates uh, that prompted uh, uh, Senator Obama to say, I think we ought to consider him 
uh, for vice president because mm. he understood that one of the obligations of the vice presidential nominee was going to be a national debate. Now, there were many other reasons why he chose Biden. So Biden, you know, there, you, there is no substitute for experience. And he does have an advantage on this stage. He knows what it's like to be on these stages. And um, most of the other candidates, save Bernie Sanders, has, have never been there. Uh, and so I think that will redound to his benefit. You talked about how he's more disciplined than he's given credit for. Uh, usually, uh, here's an example of that from a 2007-2008 uh, debate. Uh, take a listen. An editorial in the Los Angeles Times said, in addition to his uncontrolled verbosity, Biden is a gaffe machine. Can you reassure voters in this country that you would have the discipline you would need on the world stage, Senator? Yes. Pretty good. And uh, yeah, that was a great moment. And I will say this. I, I suspect that that was a prepared moment. And, uh, you know, the, the, his team, he has got a very experienced debate team, Ron Klain leading that uh, that team. I'm sure that they've spent a lot of time on this and rehearsing the obvious questions that are going to come up and uh, to try and produce moments like that. Uh, and if he delivers a few moments like that, he can really help solidify uh, his uh, frontrunner status here. David Axelrod, thank you. Always great talking to you. Appreciate it. Good to see you, Jake. A momentous day at the Supreme Court leading President Trump to make an unprecedented legal request. But is that legal request legal? Stay with us. A potentially monumental move in the politics lead today. President Trump says he has asked his lawyers to try to delay the 2020 census in the wake of a consequential Supreme Court decision earlier today. The justices blocked the Trump administration's attempt to add a citizenship question on next year's survey. Democrats noted that a strategist once wrote about the question possibly giving Republicans an advantage. Another important decision today kept the courts out of state disputes over redistricting. As CNN's Jessica Schneider reports now, the two huge decisions came down to one man who could be the court's newest swing vote. Two Supreme Court decisions dropping on the last day of the term, sure to impact who's representing you in Congress. The conservative justices led by Chief Justice John Roberts ruling that courts cannot decide when politicians have drawn congressional or state legislative district lines to gain political advantage. Partisan gerrymandering claims present political questions beyond the reach of the federal courts. Federal judges have no license to reallocate political power between the two major political parties. The decision will leave in place any challenge maps across the country. Opponents contend many districts have been drawn carefully and often nonsensically in odd shapes to favor one party over another. Right now, that means Republicans have the advantage. The GOP currently controls both the governorship and the legislature in 22 states. Democrats control just 14. And when results from the 2020 census roll around, the party in power will pick how district lines are drawn. What that means is that all of these seats in both the U.S. House and in the state houses are going to be about the primary, where the candidate who's going to win is going to be the one who can run furthest to the base of the party and less about the general election and about trying to actually be a moderate and trying to compromise. 
Justice Elena Kagan wrote the dissent for the liberals, remarking with deep sadness that the practices challenged in these cases imperil our system of government. None is more important than free and fair elections. While the chief justice sided with conservatives on partisan gerrymandering, he lined up partly with the liberals when it came to the 2020 census. A question asking people's citizenship will not be added to the 2020 census for now, sending the case back to New York federal court to try to determine the administration's true intent. The ruling is a setback for the Trump administration, with printing set to begin in just days. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross insisted publicly a citizenship question would help the Justice Department enforce the Voting Rights Act. But challengers claim that a now-deceased Republican redistricting expert study showing counting only citizens would advantage Republicans may have been a driving force for adding the question. Despite the Trump administration's attempt to politicize the census and divide our nation, we, the people, prevailed. But there is still an uphill battle for groups challenging the citizenship question. The Supreme Court did say the Commerce Department has the authority to add this question. It just has to better explain its rationale. But this is an inquiry that will be playing out in the lower court for days, if not weeks. Jake, making it unclear when and ultimately if this politically charged citizenship question will actually be printed on the 2020 census. Jake. All right, Jessica Schneider at the Supreme Court for us. Thank you so much. I want to bring in Kim Whaley. She's a former federal prosecutor. She worked with independent counsel Ken Starr in the Whitewater investigation. And she also is out with a brand new book called How to Read the Constitution and Why. And I should disclose that I like the book so much I blurbed it at the bottom there. So I don't want anybody accusing me of any malfeasance. It's a great book. Congratulations on that. Thanks, Jake. Um, so President Trump tweeted as a response to the census ruling, I have asked the lawyers if they can delay the census, no matter how long, until the United States Supreme Court is given additional information from which it can make a final and decisive decision on this very critical matter. Um, Can he do that? Well, this all comes down to the statute. Congress gave the Secretary of Commerce the ability to implement the census. April 1st is the date on which the census has to occur under the statute. And so I don't know how he can change an act of Congress. This is another sort of standoff between presidential power, congressional power. The majority in this court basically said Congress calls the shots here. If, if the agency is going to make rules under the census, they have to have good reasons for it. That's pursuant to a statute. That's a slow process to go back and fix that. It doesn't happen overnight under the Administrative Procedure Act, which is what the court ruled under in this particular case. So that in that part of the decision, uh, Roberts sided with the liberals. Uh, and the other decision uh, about redistricting, Roberts sided with the conservatives uh, about redistricting, basically saying that it's I mean, sky's the limit. Uh, states can do what they want. Um, state politics has often dictated congressional districts. Um, take a look at these uh, District 3 uh, in Maryland. The Washington Post called that once America's most gerrymandered district. Um, what do you, how do you see this going forward? I mean, is this just going to mean we have the most divided state governments uh, in terms of the legislatures going forward? It's state and federal government. This is really a disaster for democracy and for the, for the, the Constitution. Uh, basically, what the court said was the court can't take this question, period. No federal court can answer this because it's too vague. We don't have standards. We can't set up a test to determine when gerrymandering is too political. That is, you have 50 percent voting Republican, but nine out of the 10 representatives end up in the Democratic Party because of the way they cut up in these distorted ways the particular uh, districts. Justice Kagan, in her dissent, said, wait a minute, we set up tests all the time. If the intent is to basically 
uh, consolidate power in, in an incumbent, that's not consistent with why we have a democracy for, uh, that empowers we the people. The court said no. It's really terrible. In your book, um, How to Read the Constitution and Why, you write, we are now at a crossroads in history where Congress is not functioning as a truly representative body or a measure check on the other two branches. There is a real chance of democracy failing in our lifetimes with tyranny taking its place. You really you really think that's happening? What, what, what is the biggest threat, do you think? I think it's the uh, amassing of power in the presidency. We're seeing it with the tweets today. Listen, I'm in charge of the census, regardless of what Congress says, and it's Congress not functioning in its oversight responsibilities. The, the way this our system works, nobody's above the law, nobody's the boss, but that requires someone to issue speeding tickets, right? So if Congress is not going to issue speeding tickets to the president when he, when he blows off the speed limit, then the speed limit becomes irrelevant. And and as Justice Douglas wrote famously, you know, when, democ- when we're in the de- uh, twilight of democracy, it's not going to come overnight. It will come a- as a slow drip. So we need to take back our, our democracy. And unfortunately, the citizenship or excuse me, the gerrymandering decision today is going to make that even harder. With, with blatantly Democratic districts, blatantly Republican districts. It happens on both sides. Yeah. And, uh, and there, to, to send it back to the legislature to fix, that's what the majority said, is kind of starting at square one again. That's the reason they had the lawsuit to begin with. The book is How to Read the Constitution and Why Kim Whaley. Always great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jay. Appreciate it. One Democratic presidential hopeful is already cashing in on the first debate. Former Housing Secretary Julian Castro joins me live next. Stay with us. We have some breaking news in our national lead now. In just minutes, we expect the House of Representatives to vote on the Senate's version of that bill that would provide humanitarian aid for people at the border, for migrants there. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi now saying that the House will pass that bill, the Senate version, which gives $4.6 billion to deal with the humanitarian crisis at the border. More progressive members of her caucus are already slamming the decision. For instance, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeting, quote, under no circumstances should the House vote for a McConnell-only bill with no negotiation with Democrats. Hell no. That's an abdication of power we should refuse to accept. They will keep hurting kids if we do. Uh, joining me now, now to talk about this and much more, Democratic presidential candidate uh, Julian Castro, the former HUD secretary. He had a standout moment during, discussing his immigration plans during last night's debate. He's also, as I mentioned, uh, former housing secretary under President Obama. Uh, secretary Castro, uh, you heard the argument Ocasio-Cortez is making. Do you agree with her or do you agree with Speaker Pelosi, who is basically saying, I don't like it, uh, but we need to get money to these kids at the border so we should pass this? Uh, I don't like what the Senate's doing, but the kids come first. Well, as you know, uh, Jake, this news just came down. I haven't had the opportunity to look at the Senate version of this bill. However, I will say uh, that uh, I would only support this type of funding if they are, there are strong enough guardrails, strong enough measures so that the administration has to use any money that's appropriated specifically to improve the living conditions of the children who are being impacted by this detention. We need to end this detention. Um, I also recognize that we want to make sure that children have what they need. The problem is that this administration has a habit and a pattern of taking money that was meant to be spent in one way and using it in another way. A good example of that is a few months ago, the president cobbled together a billion dollars that was supposed to be spent for other things to be spent for the wall that he wants to build. So I understand the concern very much that 
you know, you need to be sure that there are enough guardrails in place that they can't take this money that's supposed to go to the living conditions of children and spend it in some other way. And they need to accelerate getting these children out of these facilities and into uh, the homes of relatives that live in the United States or of caregivers and their homes that'll be better living conditions for them. We don't want to prolong children living in these types of conditions. So uh, last night, you and Beto O'Rourke got into a back and forth about your proposal uh, that other candidates, other Democrats, are now backing to decriminalize uh, the act of crossing the border illegally into the United States, making it a civil issue, not a criminal one. Right now, um, the immigration system, it seems fair to say, is overwhelmed with the number of people entering the country uh, illegally. Uh, by taking away the criminality, are you not worried that you would be incentivizing even more people to enter the country illegally, thus overwhelming the system even more? Uh, not at all. In fact, if you remember, about a year ago, this administration basically told us that as Americans, if we could just be cruel enough to separate little children from their parents, that that would deter more Central American families from coming. That's what they said, that, that their way of doing things, this cruelty, would deter more families from coming. And instead, more families actually came. So I believe that that has nothing to do with whether these families are going to come. What I would do is, number one, uh, I would make sure that we put more judges and staff into an independent immigration judiciary court system, because people will still be in the court system, so that we can get through the backlog of a asylum cases and other cases so people are not waiting here in limbo for years. Secondly, I would make sure that we partner with uh, Honduras and El Salvador uh, and uh, these Northern Triangle countries so that people can find safety and opportunity there instead of having to come to the United States. So during eight years of Obama, it also happened, not to the same degree, but that there were other tragedies, other horrors, other things that shocked our system. During Obama, minors were put in cages. Uh, during Obama, hundreds of people were found dead trying to come into this country. And I've heard uh, people, immigration activists, say, where was the Democratic Party then? Where was the outrage then? Sure, it's good to have it now, but how come it wasn't there when Obama was in charge? Well, to the credit of immigration activists, they have been proposing things like the repeal of Section 1325 for years. Look, uh, when I was mayor of San Antonio, I was at times critical of the Obama administration, uh, critical of the Bush administration before that, and certainly I've been critical of the Trump administration. Uh, I don't see this first in terms of party. Uh, what I'm concerned about are the people that are involved. I will say, though, that, you know, I. I believe that there was a real difference between uh, the intention of President Obama and the compassion that he had for people who were seeking a better life in this country than what Donald Trump does. I mean, this is a feature of his administration. This cruelty is a feature of his administration. That wasn't the case, I don't believe, with Barack Obama. Democratic presidential candidate, Secretary Julian Castro, thank you. Have fun. Good luck out there on the campaign trail. Thanks a lot, Jake. Democratic infighting as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announces the House will pass the Senate's version of a border funding bill. Progressives in the party take shots at Pelosi. Stay with us. Breaking news in just minutes. The House of Representatives will vote on the Senate's version of a bill to address the humanitarian crisis at the border. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi saying the House 
will pass the bill, but more progressive members of the Democratic caucus are slamming the decision, including Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York, who joins me now. Congresswoman, thanks for joining us. You tweeted, quote, under no circumstances should the House vote for a McConnell-only bill with no negotiation with Democrats. Hell no. That's an abdication of power we should refuse to accept. They will keep hurting kids if we do. Those are strong words against Speaker Pelosi. And, and that bill, as you know, passed 84 to 8 in the Senate. A lot of liberal Democrats voted for it. Explain why you're taking such a strong stance here. Because, you know, Jake, this is an issue not just of the substance of the bill, but also the process of how we got here. We passed a House version of this bill, which had far more humanitarian provisions and accountability for the facilities that are abusing kids at our border. And Mitch McConnell immediately smacked it down in order to pass and ram through a Senate bill that has an enormous amount of funding for military, as well as no guardrails and no accountability for facilities that are abusing our kids. So that's the bill that's in front of us here in front of the House. However, we didn't even bother to negotiate. There are House amendments. We could have negotiated it in. We could have conferenced. We could have tried to get amendments in to get humanitarian provisions put in, to get consequences for facilities that abuse kids in. And instead, what we're doing is that we're immediately going to just saying yes to what got passed out of the Senate. And these are two completely different dynamics. The Senate, you have a minority Democratic Party there. And here, we are the House of Representatives, and we are a House majority, and we need to act like it. But, Congresswoman, didn't you vote against the House version, too? I did. I did. And the reason that I did as well is because I, I understand you had Julian Castro right before. He disagreed with even the House version of the bill, as as do I. I do not believe that we should be throwing more uh, money to ICE. My district is 50 percent immigrant, and I have an, uh, an obligation and a responsibility to protect them. I believe that really what we should ideally be doing is passing a pure humanitarian bill to get money straight to those kids. No tricks, no writers, no poison pills. We need to get to toothpaste, toothbrush, soap, and we need to make sure that these kids are protected as well as having their resources funded. And the fact that this is even a game is, a frankly, a, a huge, huge disappointment. Well, if you oppose the Senate bill and you also oppose the House bill, I guess I'm wondering what it is that you're willing to support that could pass in either the House or the Senate. Right. And and once again, I think that a pure humanitarian bill could pass. I do not believe that Republican voters are are interested back home in preventing kids from getting toothbrush, toothbrushes and toothpaste. Pass just the money for these uh, for for these kids. In addition, if the president wanted to, he could he could declare an emergency right now and get that money to those kids, because right now what he's able to do is he's able to put billions of dollars from the Pentagon with funds from getting dispersed in Puerto Rico in order for him to build an inanimate wall. But he will not lift a finger in the same capacity in order to get toothpaste to those kids. So go ahead. So I I think that what we can do, A, there's that provision with the president, but also what we can do is pass a pure humanitarian bill. But you know what? Even if it came down to it, if it came down to brass tacks and we had to negotiate in an imperfect bill with House amendments, that at least is better than the situation that we have right now. But I guess my point is, isn't your desire for your vision of this bill? I mean, there are kids, as you point out, and the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Kevin McAleen, and he's been talking, he's been warning about this for months. Mm-hmm. It's going to be overcrowded. We need funding. Three billion of the four point six billion uh, is going to housing for kids, for migrant kids. I think another eight hundred thousand or so going to housing for for other undocumented immigrants, adults. 
by, by opposing both bills, mm-hmm. aren't you just ultimately depriving these kids of housing facilities that they need? Well, when you look at both of how both of these bills happened, uh, Jake, I think it's important that we have members of Congress that stand up and actually call truth to the situation. The House bill passed resoundingly. There were only four Democrats that defected, including myself, from that bill. And the reason I defected is because I needed to send a message to my constituents and my folks back home. And in fact, my constituents asked me to vote no on the bill. But if it ultimately came down to it, if we needed to, if we needed 100 percent every single Democrat to vote on this bill, we could do it with the amendments. But the problem right now and the question at hand right now is that Mitch McConnell sent us a bill and we're just putting a big check mark on it instead of even trying to negotiate. I have indicated that I'm willing to stay here. I don't need to go home on vacation. I don't need to Mm -hmm. go home to July 4th weekend. I will stay here all weekend to make sure that we get this thing done. And instead what Mitch McConnell is doing is that he's relying on the time pressure of recess to try to ram through a bill that is completely irresponsible to the American people and to those kids on the border. I want to ask you, last night you tweeted, quote, last week we called the concentration camps at the border for what they are. In the week since, the acting director of Customs and Border Patrol resigned. Bank of America announced they will stop financing for-profit immigration detention and private prisons. Words matter, unquote. Um, I guess two questions here. One, you're taking credit for calling these camps, your, your detention centers, you're, you're taking credit for those developments by using the term concentration camp? And two, what do you say to Americans, especially survivors of the Holocaust or individuals who are related to survivors of the Holocaust, who say, look, academically, you're right. The term concentration camp did not necessarily mean death camp. But colloquially, when most people hear it, they think death camp. They think Holocaust. And you're, you're undermining your argument and you're, and you're hurting us. What, mm-hmm. You're hurting our feelings, hurting our emotions, hurting our memories. Mm-hmm. What do you say to those Holocaust survivors? Absolutely. Well, you know, I have, I have many in my district and our, our Jewish community has kind of has rallied around this issue because uh, when we talk about concentration camps, if we do not also talk about Japanese internment, if we don't talk about the Boer War, if we don't talk about the many times that this has happened in the history of humanity, then we also erase the suffering of those people. I believe that uh, we have also make sure, made sure that we explicitly use the term concentration camp, and we have to learn from the slow process, the slow dehumanizing process that leads to horrible things happening to people. And I know that my folks back home and in my district in Queens and the Bronx, our community has rallied around it. We absolutely and and absolutely have communicated with survivors to indicate that this is not the same thing as as you had mentioned academically as an extermination or a death camp. And in fact, this is an opportunity for us to talk about how we learn from our history in order to prevent it from ever happening in any form, at any step, whether it's a concentration camp or whether it's the, the, the final steps of that phase from happening. And, and even at the earliest steps, we have to make sure that dehumanizing and that never again means never again for anyone. When you retweeted a story from Esquire magazine discussing all this, talking about the academic definition versus the definition that most people think of, the colloquial definition that doesn't mean Uh, the concentration camp or just a concentration of individuals, but a Nazi death camp. Uh, One of the points that was made in that very story was that using that definition, there were also uh, concentration camps under Obama and under Bill Clinton. That is in the story that you retweeted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So 
Did you call them concentration camps at the time when Obama was president? Well, at the time I was working in a restaurant, but I do, but I absolutely uh, was outspoken in against Obama's immigration policies and the detention of families then. I think it's a remarkably consistent position, and I'm not here to defend uh, wrong actions just because they happened under a Democratic administration. I'm here to speak truth to power, and if it's wrong, it's wrong, and I frankly don't care what president does it. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from Queens, thank you so much for your time. Always good to see you. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. Finally, from us in our pop culture lead, more than 15 million people tuned into last night's debate hosted by NBC, though President Trump's focus was to criticize the network and its cable arm for some technical issues that forced a premature commercial break. The president called it unprofessional. And look, we aren't here to poke fun. It's live TV and stuff happens. But the bout of TV gremlins did remind us of a far worse snafu back in 1976 when this glitch happened during the first debate between Governor Jimmy Carter and then-President Gerald Ford. There's a breakdown in the trust among our people and the... The poor broadcasters in Philadelphia have temporarily lost the audio. It is not a conspiracy against Governor Carter or President Ford. Temporarily lost the audio? That lasted for 27 long and awkward minutes. Both candidates are waiting. They have been told that uh, they're on the air with a picture, but they are off the air. We noted that at no point did Governor Carter or President Ford take to Twitter to attack the media for the technical problems. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.